Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to the interview series, New Books in African American Studies, where writers of African American life and culture discuss their new books. I'm your host, Sherry Johnson, and I'm excited that Paula T. Conley, Associate Professor of English at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, has agreed to be our guest for today. Dr. Conley is the author of Slavery in American Children's Literature, 1790 to 2010, published by the University of Iowa Press in 2013. In our conversation, the professor shares with readers the tropes and common themes in literature for children on the topic of slavery during the antebellum era, postbellum era, the Harlem Renaissance, through to our contemporary period. I'm certain you'll enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Listen in. Okay, good day and welcome to New Books in African American Studies. I'm your host, Jerry Johnson, and today we're joined by Dr. Paula T. Conley, author of Slavery in American Children's Literature, 1790 to 2010. Thank you for being here with us today, Paula. Thank you so much for asking me, Sherry. No problem. To begin our conversation, uh, do you mind sharing a little bit about yourself? Sure. I was born and brought up in Boston for the most part. And um, had a family that really asked us to question things, whether it was religion or social issues or politics, and just grew up in sort of a a big, messy family where we kept debating and questioning things, which was kind of fun. Mm -hmm. Um, From a little kid, loved literature, would just read anything and everything, Mm -hmm. and um, stayed with that until I was actually on my doctorate. And for the first time I was in a class, I'd had history classes before, but for the first time I was in a class that was looking at literature, but we were also looking at the parliamentary papers. It was a Victorian lit class. And something happened, and it was this notion of history and literature just opening each other up in ways that was really exciting. And we were also looking at child labor laws and Dickens and different people who were talking about children in the mills. So this history and children and literature thing all sort of came together at that point, mm-hmm. which was really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, got the degree at UMass Amherst, came down here to UNC Charlotte, and I'm the coordinator of the children's literature program down here, and teach a range of children's literature classes from um, film classes on Disney and children's literature to multiculturalism classes, picture book classes, adolescent lit, just a whole range of things. Oh, fantastic. So it was really in graduate school that you became really, your interest became more pinpointed to literature, but but children's lit, you would say. Well, I had, we uh, really focused on three different areas to get through the degree. And one of my areas was children's lit. Uh, My dissertation, I was looking at American women writers of the 19th century, and one of those, I looked at four, and one was Harriet Jacobs. Mm -hmm. So that element of finding out more about both narratives themselves and also issues of slavery was happening. So it was this wonderful, I mean, grad school is this wonderful 
if we're lacking petri dish yes. of tons of different things coming together. Yes. That's where a lot of this started happening. Yeah. Well, it's really fortunate that the things that all of the the things that happen to the petri dish, as you note, yeah. um, can come together and really, um, if we're lucky, think of ways in which these these things come together. All the things that we love come together so that we can create something yeah. that draws on each of these elements. Doesn't always happen, you know, but um, it's magic when it does. All right, so tell tell us uh, who some of your mentors were um, as you were on this journey. Well, uh, one would be that professor in Victorian Lit class, Dr. Perosi, and he was just fabulous. Um, and this sounds like a weird answer, but a lot of my mentors are actually books. If that doesn't make me sound like too much of a bookhead. Yeah. Um, but you read a good book, and especially when I was in the process of this project, and a lot of it was sitting in a room and sitting in libraries, but when I'm, I'm reading good books, Donna Ray McCann, who is absolutely brilliant, and I met her, um, but her book on white supremacy in children's literature was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, Kate Capshaw-Smith, um, who's now a professor up at um, Connecticut, mm-hmm. um, is both a mentor, but in some sense I also have, if this doesn't sound odd, dialogues with her book and her writing, too. She's written on the Harlem Renaissance in children's literature. So along the process, there have been these sort of people I know, but... I also have the advantage of being able to sit around and read them, and that's a lot too. Yeah, of course. It's it's absolutely a, a bonus when you find people who write in the area that you're interested in, and then you meet them, and then they become mentors or they become friends um, by chance through this shared well, shared love. And, and the one thing that's that I love about children's literature is children's literature association conferences or whatever the conferences, people want to help each other. So they find out your interest in something and they'll offer to read it or they'll give you suggestions. And it's been a fabulous, that's been a fabulous experience because a lot of this project, I didn't want to publish along the way because I wanted the book in its entirety at the end. Um, but I played out bits and pieces of it at conferences. Right. So that's where a lot of sort of, on-site mentoring happens too. Yes, of course. All right. So your book, Slavery in American Children's Literature, 1790 to 2010. It's a huge, that's a vast chunk of time. Chunk. Yes. Chunk of time. And so uh, before we get into talking about the text a little bit more pointedly, um, how does it, how would you say it fits in the field um, of children's lit? There hadn't been um, a study that was comprehensive that deals with issues of slavery in children's literature. And the book is sort of took me at least two different parts to write. The first part was recovery, and I um, sort of scoured rare book rooms and um, got microfilm in, microcards, whatever I had to get, or, or some libraries were fabulous and scan things and sent them to me. Mm-hmm. But but there was no collection, weren't many articles out about what had been published mm-hmm. for children about mm-hmm. slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of it was collecting that, um, and the other part was making sense of it and trying to figure out patterns and everything. Mm-hmm. And some people had written um, different things about um, images of race in children's literature. Of course, Donna Ray McCann's book is a great one. She does 19th century images. Doesn't necessarily focus on slavery, though she includes it. 
but it was this sort of consistent focus on slavery and what it means and how each generation or time period sort of shifts that that hadn't really been done in children's literature. That's one of, one of the things I'm hoping that we get a chance to elaborate a little bit more on um, in the course of our conversation, and that is the topic of slavery and how different generations reshape that topic um, depending on the historical context and their future outlook, you know. Yeah. Um, I think that that's, well, why don't we just go there? I think that that is, um, maybe we can uh, start by looking at antebellum era, how some of the texts that we get in the antebellum era, whether they're abolitionist or um, pro-slavery, how they answer the question of what is the topic of slavery and how do we imagine our future with this institution? Let's start there. Sure. Um, What I did is... um sort of two parts. One part is um, I looked at the slave narrative, the white-authored abolitionist novel, and the uh, plantation novel, which was pro-slavery, and those were all written for adults. And um, this has been done before, but I took a look at those genres and tried to figure out how children's literature responded to those. And they do. Um, This notion that children's literature is somehow different from what the general culture is talking about just isn't true. Sometimes people think that. Um, But then when I looked at the children's literature, um, I separated out. My first chapter is on um, abolitionist work and my second on Mm pro-slavery. And what I did, and actually let me do a bit of a sidebar um, in terms of language here, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, I mentioned this in the beginning of the book. I specifically use the terms black and white, even when I'm referring to people, because I don't want to use African-American until after the 14th Amendment. I think it, it cutes it up a little too much to mm. pretend there's citizenship when there isn't. Right. The other reason I use it is because a lot of the literature is about skin color. It's about this setting of oppositions. Mm-hmm. So I sort of keep saying that to remind us what these images are and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and same thing with the notion of slave and enslaved. Um, slave sometimes is seen as objectified. But frankly, in my study, that's the point. Mm-hmm. There are these images that are objectified over. So just a little bit for why I'm using which language I'm using. Sure. For the abolitionist, I separated out into radical, moderate, and conservative. And um, had to choose. There were tons of material out there. That was one thing that shocked me, mm-hmm. is I really didn't know how much was out there and and a lot of it hadn't been discussed before and and so forth some you know many people didn't know how much was out there um the radical i I take these terms a little bit borrowing from garrison and and his definition of abolitionism too but radical wants immediate emancipation (coughs) and argues for racial equality and says that no slavery is good, doesn't matter what the conditions are, the apologists, everything else, no slavery is good, and talks about um, clear images of violence. Um, Radical abolitionism also wants to radicalize children so that they're activists. They want them to start juvenile abolitionist societies, and they did. They wanted them to boycott sugar products, and they did. And, um, but one thing in the midst of that activism, um, in trying to get children engaged in abolitionism, that radical abolitionist literature also does is it often, not always, 
but it often sets up this hierarchy of the white hero. Now, again, you don't see this all the time, but you see it in most of it, right. that there is this white hero and the supplicant slave who wants help. Um, that's important because it encourages young white children, and a lot of the literature was geared toward them, young white children to try to get involved and to try to do something. It sets up a model for them. Mm -hmm. um, a problem, of course, in the middle of this is it sets up um, real divides in terms of race and racial definitions. So there's that ambivalence in the um, radical lit. The moderate and conservative are a little um, less complicated. The moderate, what I did to define that is I looked especially at um, some geography books and history books, Peter Polly books by um, Goodrich, Samuel Goodrich. And they will say that slavery is horrible, but it's horrible in Africa, mm -hmm. and it's horrible on the water, and it's horrible in other places, but you don't bring it to the U.S. You don't right. discuss it in the U.S. This is the moderate. That's right. Mm -hmm. And when it is in the U.S., there's all often a type of apology like uh, slavery isn't good, but if you have a kind master, you can be very happy. Mm -hmm. um, and they just don't want to criticize the U.S. where the radicals are going after the U.S. government. They're sort of straight out. Mm -hmm. The conservatives, um, what I've defined as conservative, and I've got two examples in the book on that. One is uh, Hatchie, the Guardian Slave. That's right. And it's this man who is tremendously, he's enslaved, he's tremendously powerful. Um, he's the smartest one in the group. The white people are basically idiots, or at least the nice white people are. Mm -hmm. um, he's the smartest one in the group. He's physically strong. He is the leader of the, of the um, white people in some sense. Um, but the story is that there is a white girl, his mistress, who um, is being tricked and someone is trying to enslave her, pretending she's a slave. Mm -hmm. And what happens in the course of this is he protects her, saves her, uh, makes sure that the bad guy is punished. He even feigns a lynching of the white guy, the bad white guy. Um, but at the end, he says he doesn't want to be free. He wants to be with his mistress. Mm -hmm. And when you look at that, somebody might say, well, that's pro-slavery. Pro-slavery, you don't get these strong hero types. Right. Um, and yet, as anti-slavery, he's a strong anti-slavery person figure. But certainly, his, his um, uh, at the end, his wanting to give up any notion of his own freedom to serve his mistress um, just collapses all of that. So it's a very odd genre. Yeah. So one foot in each, each territory, almost. Yeah, I noticed that. And I... I uh, another uh, thing about the, you know, with the distinction between, say, radical and, and conservative at the other end of the spectrum is that um, contrary to what we believe or what it, it would seem is that images of violence often appear in the conservative abolitionist um, literature versus the radical abolitionist uh Literature. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, it seems like an oxymoron, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. Um, what you see, well, the the conservative lit too tends to come in the form of adventure tales, mm -hmm. and adventure tales like you know violence and all that you know 
type of scenario. So that's why it shows up there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the other is in conservative, it's contained because they will um, have the hero, the black hero, take it back um, mm-hmm. in service to the white mistress or the master or something or other. But what happens in the um, radical abolitionist lit is you see some representation of violence early on. Um, Noah Webster, dictionary person, right. in 1790, he actually has two entries in one of his books. Uh, the book didn't do well. We think it's probably because of the um, abolitionist sentiment in it. And a side thing, actually, I found it interesting. When I went looking for copies of that book, I found them in a couple of four rare book rooms that I looked at. In three of them, those specific pages that had the abolitionist uh, material in it were taken out. Wow. Which meant, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I finally got it at the Library of Congress, and that one was complete. But at these other libraries, which had all of the books were, you know, all together, nothing was missing. But a couple of ways that abolitionist literature was censored in the 19th century, abolitionist time, was one, they would pin or sometimes yes. soak pages together. Mm-hmm. And the other was in the case of this, they just ripped out those pages, which I thought was, and to find three examples of that. Um, in the same text, it's pretty yeah. powerful. Makes you want to read what exactly is in there, those pages, right? Missing. Um, but to go back to your point, Sherry, um, you see some of that violence in Webster's early material when he talks about um, slaves on board the ship wanting to um, overthrow their captors mm-hmm. and try to fight back and the violence that ensues because of that. Mm-hmm. Some of those passages are taken almost directly from uh, Equiano, uh, as a matter of fact, in terms of conditions. But what happens in the 1930s when you have Garrison and the Slave's Friend, which is one of Garrison's publications come out, is there is this emphasis on peace and this emphasis on nonviolence. Mm-hmm. And that shows up um, in the radical abolitionist lit as a way to criticize slavery because slavery is violent. Okay. So here's the horrors of violence. And then what happens for the pro-abolitionists is you don't want to be like them, so you don't want to be violent. Mm-hmm. But what it does, um, of course, is it takes away so much agency at that right. point. Um, it really moves away from the slave narrative. Right. There are, in the slave's friend, um, I'm going to guess, I've read the whole thing several times, of course, all the issues, but I think there might have been two or three times where you have a slave who fights back. Um, But typically, there is a sense that when they do that, it's understandable, but it wasn't good, and we shouldn't do that, and that's the message over and over to Mm -hmm. the children. Mm -hmm. But it does set up the supplicant slave image. Yeah, I... Uh, as you were talking, I was thinking, and and when I was reading the text, I was thinking about, you know, of course, a contemporary children's literature and how uh, we deal and in this moment with slavery, the topic of slavery. And, it, you know, where would you say if, I mean, it's kind of um, a broad question, but where would you say, if at all, contemporary um, depictions of slavery in children's literature fall? Would it most nicely fall in the category of conservative, radical, uh, moderate? I'd say mostly radical now because there is tremendously good material coming out 
Um, Julius Lester's work, I talk about him a little bit in the book. I mean, the man is brilliant. Um, but his, and I have it here, um, his To Be a Slave, which is, and I'm checking for the date, I think it's 1968. Yeah, it was 1968 it came out. And I know that's a little old. But what he did in that was um, thoroughly revision discussions about slavery for children. His lack of closure, there are people in there who are quoted from the uh, WPA administration when they were collecting uh, testimony of people in the early 20th century, and he'll quote slave narratives. He quotes some pro-slavery, too, because he's having this dialogue between different people back and forth in the collection. And what he does in there is he'll continually uh, reinforce the notions of what violence people are dealing with in contemporary times. So people say, yes, yeah, slavery's gone, but the issues aren't gone. We're still dealing with them. And I think a lot of people today who are writing about slavery do that. Uh, there was a new book that came out of, from Canada, 5,000 Years of Slavery. Mm-hmm. And it deals with slavery historically but also brings it up to today and talks about issues of enslavement that, that are still going on. So I think people are more ready to engage this, mm-hmm. and they're going back to the narratives, a lot of them, to tell their mm-hmm. stories. Mm-hmm. Good. Well, that's good. That's excellent to hear. Um, um, I was a little bit nervous um, because if you take a look at, say, some of the tropes that we saw in or that we see in pro-slavery texts like the creating of impotence in the slave, right, and creating this white hero, and you look at those tropes and you look at, say, some very contemporary movies that follow this very conventional uh, narrative, it seems that it it's still the same, right? That, yeah. that narrative has not died out. Very I think you're absolutely right. I think the images are there. Um, but books that are written specifically about slavery now um, tend to be more, and we've got a couple of holdovers. Mm-hmm. I just read a book called Freedom Bound, uh, which was also Canadian. I was just doing some work on Canadian books, and it was all about a white hero, and there were some black slaves in the background um, who can't particularly do anything for themselves, and the white hero comes in and saves them, that kind of thing. But those books are rare. Um, but to your point, Sherry, there is absolutely no question that those images, those pro-slavery images and the tropes are unfortunately but alive and well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see them in the wider culture. I'm sure you can see them in a range of children's books, too. Mm-hmm. I couldn't name any off for you right now, mm-hmm. um, but I'm sure you can. And that's part of the problem is it's infiltrated even when we're not talking about these issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, one of the things that concerns me, I mean, I, I got interested in the topic because um, we have English education majors in my university, my department, and um, there's just such a reticence to discussing slavery, and yeah. yet still there is a recognition that they have to deal with this topic, so they want something quick and easy for how we can address it and move on. Um, and then, of course, many of the images that they choose, man, many of the books uh, that they choose, reinforce unknowingly these old uh, stereotypes and um, just taking away the agency of the slave. And so it's a bit problematic for me, right, because how do we continue to change, you know, how do we change the curriculum if, you know, the teachers or the young teachers that are, are now being trained are not 
are finding it difficult or uncomfortable with learning about slavery so that then they can be able to impart um, information properly to their students? Well, in the most comforting narrative um, for um, people who are afraid of the issue, or for, for I'm, I'm going to say, I think the most comforting narrative for white people is the rescue narrative mm-hmm. in which there is a white person who goes in, helps usually a small family, mm-hmm. and gets them to safety. It suggests that slavery is small, discreet, and one act will save everything. Not that a single act isn't important, but that one act will save everything. Right. And you've got the white hero in that. There are still a lot of books that do that. Um, and you know, when you're talking about that, uh, picture books especially do that. Yeah. When I was talking about the lack of closure in the back to slave narratives, the YA books tend to, to be the more adventuresome in that you're way. Right. But you're absolutely right. The picture books tend to still be um, more conservative in terms of what they do or the rescue narrative because they're thinking little kids, so let's give them this positive ending. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I'll sometimes find is students will want to think that, boy, it's a relief, that's all over, Mm -hmm. Um, and, and not think about what some of the ramifications are. I think it was George Fredrickson who said something to the effect of, um, there was a problem when slavery ended. There was another problem that couldn't be ended, which was slavery had created this host of tropes, as you mm-hmm. said, mm-hmm. and then they're embedded in the culture, and we get replaying those tropes with some kind of almost self-satisfied uh, ease mm-hmm. um, if you're standing from the outside thinking that the event is over, so everything's over when... You know, it's it's sitting there. One text that I think is really good is um, Curtis's Elijah Buxton. Um, and at the end of that, we see this woman who, you know, spoiler, but, but she remains enslaved. Another problem with these rescue narratives is that they tend to suggest that if you were able to be helped by typically a white person, or if you were brave and strong and smart, you got away. Yeah. Which doesn't say much for everybody else who wasn't able to get away. Right. Curtis addresses this, and, and the ending um, is so powerful mm-hmm. when he talks about um, people who don't get away mm-hmm. and are nonetheless all of those things, brave, heroic, you name it, mm-hmm. um, despite that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that I'm, I'm working with right now when I think about exactly what you just said is that we're looking at, say, neo-slave narratives that kind of reinforce this idea of, you know, if you are smart, if you are exceptional, then you, um, you know, somehow got away and were able to tell your story. And the challenge is that within these texts, sometimes they do have examples of individuals who didn't make it. But there's this strange, um, you know, there's this strange way of, of like inferring that, you know, an inference that can be made that if you are bright, then you can make it or if you're exceptional. But my argument would be that if we look at some of the narrow, the slave narratives, never mind the, the, the classic slave narratives, that one of the things that make them so extraordinary is how ordinary they were. Yeah. It's so yeah. interesting that we're flipping it a little bit in the neo-slave narrative that you have these extra, some, some, 
Jerusalem, yeah. right? You have these extraordinary individuals and that kind of justifies or they earn their freedom in that way um, or they, they have merit, you know, for, for earning their freedom. It's a bit of a problem. It's funny when you mention that. When we look at um, radical abolitionist literature, you know, one can talk about the problems and the um, representation of subsequent slave and everything. But I think you've hit on it. For current day, I think the most problematic issue in abolitionist lit, if we're going to call it that, um, or the neo-slave narrative, is this still the notion of the hero slave Mm -hmm. and that other people in the background don't. Mm-hmm. Don't count in a way, but I. But there are some good books, and I have to admit, when I read, especially now coming into classes, I'm trying to find these books that may be exceptional themselves because mm-hmm. they may not be that wide ranging. But Mosley's Forty Seven is brilliant in that regard too, mm-hmm. um, in terms of Which sort one? of the uh, Mosley's uh, book. I think it's Forty Seven, Forty Seven or Forty Nine. I think it's Forty Seven. Okay, that the um, that the slave is so dehumanized that he's only seen as a number. Mm-hmm. And he sort of, you know, tries to, to come from that. And that book is all about race warfare. There is no sense that we're going to pretty up the conflict um, that happens in slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, another a picture book, Dave Potter, um, which one the book is that here? Or Dave the Potter, artist, poet, slave, is um, won the call. The, I'm sorry, won the Coretta Scott King, mm-hmm. and um, and that's a book that acknowledges somebody who who did live, but we don't know much about. Them. And it it goes to that issue of these many many people whose stories we don't have. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that the neo slave narrative does that I like is that it will sometimes create subjectivity for someone, mm-hmm. uh, like Fortune's Bones, mm-hmm. uh, which is based on a man who was enslaved in the 1700s in the U.S., and after he died, his body was, um, I don't know what the terminology is, but uh, his skin was taken off, mm-hmm. and he was boiled down to his bones. Mm-hmm. And it was a doctor who owned him, and the doctor did that. Mm-hmm. So that um, he could study the, you know, anatomy, and the man's bones were sort of just passed down generation to generation. Then they didn't know whose they were, mm-hmm. um, and finally, a museum recovered them. But now they're in a museum hanging. Mm-hmm. And what this woman does, the author, is she makes up poems supposedly from Fortune's perspective and from his wife's perspective. Mm-hmm. What she's trying to do is recover that notion that there are just so many people we don't know about. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's heartbreaking, the one told from Fortune's perspective, or his wife, who's made to go in and dust his bones, mm-hmm. um, that takes this sense of those in the background or those objectified and tries to give them enough subjectivity so one hopes mm-hmm. When our students and when people are reading this, it shakes their worldview mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that this is a pleasantly closed situation that doesn't have ramifications or that there were um, a number of exceptional people and what happened to the rest doesn't matter. It breaks mm-hmm. all that down, I mm-hmm. think, some of these mm-hmm. texts. 
the good ones do. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what we 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 need. I mean, I think that the the legacy of this kind of thinking, the heroic, whether it's that white figure or you know, we've now kind of flipped it, and it's the black figure within the neo slave narrative. That the legacy of it is, um, I don't know, untold, unspoken yeah. of, like. Uh, um, because you have young people today when we think about even any kind of activism who believe that, you know, um, one has to be this super duper exceptional person to be able to have any, to affect any kind of change. So, I mean, it's serious. We, we need to really begin to think about, um, toppling that, that notion of leadership or, um, exceptionalism, leaders as super exceptional. It almost fits to a type of celebrity culture. You know, you're a celebrity in the celebrity culture. Somehow what you are and what you do doesn't matter. Yeah, it, it, it's it's frightening. Yeah. Um, so we've talked a little bit about, um, well, we've talked about a bit about white authored texts as well as African-American authored texts. But I want us to talk a little bit more pointedly about um, the shift that African American authors take um, once we get into the, um, Har- say, the Harlem Renaissance era, um, how are they, you know, beginning to write about slavery? Um, there have been some before we, uh, just to put this in, um, the Youth Emancipator, which was 1842 or 43, I think. Um, came out of Oberlin, and that actually took material from um, narratives yes, and also had uh, essays. And we don't know a lot about authorship, but we think that even that early we had some. But you're absolutely right. It, it's not common. Most mm-hmm. of the authors are, are white at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens in the Harlem Renaissance is especially the Brownies book. Yeah. Um, and the Brownies book is a fabulous um, recalibration of how we're looking at slavery, or the fact that we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that um, Du Bois is doing in that, um, and it was several people's publication, but largely his publication, um, but what they do in that is they try to create a new history of America mm-hmm. so that we realize the value and contributions of African Americans. Mm-hmm. So we'll get addicts, um, and the Revolutionary War, we'll get uh, Katie Ferguson, who is a black woman who helped start Sunday schools. Yes. Um, in terms of slavery, what um, the biographies do, and they only do biographies, they don't fictionalize slavery because they don't want the naysayers to say, well, see, you're making it up, there's no such thing. But they have biographies in the um, Brownie's book. And what they do in that is they will deal with, in the Brownies book, images of violence uh, quite directly. Mm-hmm. But they will often only have about two paragraphs in, I'm making this up, maybe in a seven to eight paragraph um, essay. Mm-hmm. The biographies were usually about two pages. Mm-hmm. And in those two paragraphs, they'll talk about the violence, no holes barred of slavery. But then they move out of it. Mm-hmm. And they show what the person has um, been able to do or what their life has been like post-slavery. In spite so, of Exactly. Mm-hmm. So what they're trying to do is bridge and create um, a new history by telling the, how slavery was terrible, but also a new history of what African Americans are and do mm-hmm. in terms of contributions to the, um, to the community, 
or to um, the America at large. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How do they? How do they? Or I guess what you just outlined in terms of structure. So having you know talking about it in those texts and then moving forward is one response to the question of how they um, balance the line of telling the truth of slavery, right? Um, you know, counter countering the narrative that's pretty popular in the post plantation novels and those yeah. kind of things, right? How do they? How do they? tell the truth of slavery, but then also at the same time highlight um, the optimism that uh, existed in the postbellum um, African-American authored texts. Exactly. I'm sorry, Sherry. What I'm doing is I'm trying to find the quote um, from Du Bois, and I'm not finding it, so I won't look for it now. But one thing he had said was that he wanted to try to also bridge um, the reality of what it was without, and I'm misquoting him, but it was something like turning the children's hurts into hatred. Right. And he, and it was this notion of how do you keep the child aware of history in the world mm-hmm. and also give them a level of optimism to believe they can, as they can, contribute to the world and, and find a place in the world. Mm-hmm. Two other people um, who were writing, or two other texts of the time, too, one was um, Unsung Heroes and the other was Child's Story of the Negro, and both of those were by African-American women. And in each, they talk about, for example, Booker T. Washington. And one will talk about the clear pain of his uh, childhood. They sort of rewrite his bi- biography. But one will talk about the pain of his childhood, but she never mentions he was a slave. The other person will mention that he was a slave, but she softens some of the description of the violence. And when you look at those texts back to back, it really shows some of this dilemma. How do you do both? Mm -hmm. Um, A brilliant text of the time was Charles Dawson's um, ABCs of Great Negroes. Mm -hmm. And it's a beautiful woodcut collection of um, 26 people and a brief description of each. And in the book, I talk about Frederick Douglass, and he doesn't mention there that Douglass had been enslaved because what he wants to do is point out all of the um, achievements post-slavery rather than dwell on it. So, yeah, that's absolutely an issue of the time. Yeah. Um, I think I found the quotation that you might have been, but I, I'm not sure. It's it's W E B Du Bois on um, 148 is talking about um, part of the problem with reframing the racial education of children in the U.S. Um, and uh, the quote is, he says, um, is that American society suffered from a failure um, in human education, and that failure is due to the fact that the world regards education first as a means of buttressing the established order of things rather than improving it. And so he uses the Brownies book to be able to try to um, intersect his ideologies of education, children, race, and citizenship. Yeah. Not sure if that's the one that you were talking about. But let me ask this question. Um one of the things that I've, I definitely took away from that section is the fact that African-American authors or 
those who are have in mind, authors who have in mind to uh, not buttress, but really break down uh, racial hierarchies, the established racial hierarchies, um, are writing texts, but it seems as though I'm getting the impression that these texts are predominantly within African-American schools. So this is during the time of segregation. And um, is that true? Would you say that that's well, true? Well, Brownie's book, they, um, the way he described it is it's for all children, but especially the children of the sun. Mm-hmm. So it was never exclusive. It was hoped that it would move outward. Um, but it didn't last many years, and I think the the reason for that was both so much money was put into it. It's beautiful with um, photographs and so forth, um, but the, they didn't get the number of subscriptions that they needed. Um, in 1890, I think it was, there is um, Edward Johnson's A School History of the Negro Race in America, mm-hmm. which also has progressive narratives, and it's about 200 pages long. That was adopted in North Carolina, had 10 editions, but I haven't been able to figure out what schools it went into. Mm-hmm. So I think your point is a valid one. I'm not sure how far um, that went. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of the, 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 the things that we need to think about because there's this notion, at least myself here teaching on a PWI, you know, predominantly white um, institution, that... <clears throat> You know, when you ha- speak of anything African-American or looking at African-American authored texts, that it's for strictly African-Americans. And, you know, um, young people are really missing out on some solid information that can really challenge um, all of the young people as we think about, um, you know, deconstructing or not deconstructing, but destroying really these um, old um, racial hierarchies that continue to evolve. Right, not necessarily be destroyed, but evolve as yeah. we move forward or progress or maybe not. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. You know, as time passes. Well, that's, I would say that Bon Tom's uh, 1948, The Story of the Negro, was important because it was uh, Newbery Honor. Now, again, I'm validating because see, it's validated by mainstream. But it was published by, I can't remember, but it was one of the mainstream presses. I think it is. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, I got the Newbery uh, honor, and that was widely disseminated and widely read. Mm -hmm. Um, And he describes slavery there as a state of war. Mm -hmm. And he also talks about a range of, I can't remember how many uh, different entries he has, but a range of people who um, were enslaved. He also points out that um, something to the effect of it's difficult to know about people when um, so little has survived of their story or something to that effect, which means we have lost a lot of stories from people, mm-hmm. you know, the, the people who weren't able to escape and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, that had a wider audience. But frankly, Sherry, I think it also speaks to the notion that people don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. They don't want to read about it. If it's a... If there's a, a fun book or a book about something that's serious and is connected to issues that haven't all gone away and been tied up in a bow, mm-hmm. a lot of times people just want to turn away from it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that continues, obviously, today. I mean, that was, you know, um, Arna Botomp's book, I feel, was, if I'm remembering correctly, was, a, you know, mid-20th century, around the 19th. 19- mm-hmm. 48, 1950. Yep. And it did, as you noted, 
in, as you note in your book, as you noted here in our conversation, received the Newberry um, honor. But a couple years later, you have Elizabeth right. Yates yep. who publishes this text. Um, what, what is it called? Amos Fortune. Amos Fortune. Amos Fortune. That's yep. right. The Freeman. Yeah. Uh, and it is completely pro-slavery. You're absolutely and right. It wins. Yep. Yeah, you're absolutely it right. Get honored; it, it wins this. So it's talking about slavery. So maybe, maybe to revise that statement, then maybe the proper thing to say would be not that people aren't interested in really talking about it, but are only interested in talking about it in very prescribed, old um, ways. You know, um, because here you have this text coming out at the same time, but it's talking about slavery, but not right. Not talking well, about and I would also argue about Amos Fortune that um, your point about one of the dangers is we create narratives about heroes only. Mm-hmm. Um, that another danger you see in Amos Fortune, which is, but if you're hardworking enough, things will be fine. He works throughout his life, and toward the end of his life, he's able to buy himself free. Mm-hmm. Um, and the notion in there is that somehow slavery is, is an apprenticeship for free life. Right. A necessary and not a bad apprenticeship apprenticeship for free life. And that becomes another story that's told. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. Um, it, it is striking to me. Um, and I found that very surprising when I, you know, when with your sharp analysis of the Yates text that, it so clearly is pro-slavery in the ways that you defined it from the text from the antebellum era even. Yeah. Um, and yet still it was, it was given this, this kind of prestigious award. It was, uh, you know, the main protagonist is pro-slavery. Yeah. It's problematic. Um, all right. So can you share with us here? Here's, here's a question that is a little bit general, but will still be connected to this project is, when we're doing uh, research, we often have these serendipitous moments, um, and I want to know if you had any, um, was there any unexpected things that you found? Um, That's almost not a fair question, man. No. Um, I, I think there, this sounds silly, but there are the wonders of the library when you're sitting there and new things, and you simply find new things. Yeah. Um, and I found that in a number of different ways. Youth Emancipator was a text I never knew anything about and just found it, and and it's a powerful one. Um, what I might say is when I was reading The Slave's Friend, it wasn't so much finding out that The Slave's Friend existed, but finding out some of the small pieces along the way mm-hmm. um, that shocked me, like the couple of pieces that I found when there is a rebellious slave fighting back to the death. Mm-hmm. And yet it's sitting there amid a, a range of other stories that won't go near that issue. Mm-hmm. So I find these moments sometimes, but I'm not always sure what they mean when they're right, standing right. there just by themselves. Right, right. So I'm right, still trying right. to figure some of that out. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, you described quite nicely, too, earlier in our conversation, even though I asked the question later, of finding that you know, those books, oh, which what was the title of it? But the three copies that had the, those abolitionist sections taken out. Yeah, the um, Little Reader's Assistant. That was a great find because yeah. I hadn't thought I could find something 1790 that early about yeah. slavery. Yeah, and to and to see how uh, the evidence, right, of yeah. 
Oh, we never really talked about as well the fact that once, you know, slavery um, is abolished and we're in the Reconstruction era, we have, you know, within the span of five years, 4,000 schools that are educating 200,000, you know, um, adults and children. and, And yet they're using the texts that were from the antebellum era in these schools. And that's where I remember the pinning together of the various pages, you know, um, anything you want to share about that? Well, I found the the Friedman's books, which are used, um, after, uh, in the Friedman schools after the uh, war, really interesting. There's a whole complex history because the American tract society that puts those out, um, that's wonderful because here they're putting these texts together for free people to be able to use, but they were also an organization that often didn't want to deal with the whole notion of, of abolition to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have some fascinating um, texts in terms of how they're complex because they will talk about um, figures, uh, important uh, African-American figures, but they will also often caution against rebellion, against um, uh, doing too much to get outside social prescriptions. Mm-hmm. So they're they're both offering education and trying like crazy to pull back um, any boundaries that seem to be expanding too much. Right. right. Uh, they're, they're really riddled text, fascinating yeah. text because of that. But yeah, complex, it's a complex yeah. time. All right. So do you want to share with us any, do you have any next projects or are you just still like, basking in the glow of the success of slavery in American children's literature. What I'm actually working on is a bit of a a sister project to this. When you asked about what else um, I find or library moments, I've um, been up to a couple of the American Antiquarian Society last year, and this year I'm going to go up to the Boston Athenaeum, trying to unearth more material. And I'm working on an anthology of um, slavery stories for children from 1790, unless I can find anything a couple of years early, from 1790 to 1865. Um, And none of it has changed my argument here, so that's been a relief. Um, But what I've found has been stunning amounts of more and more material that just hasn't been, I mean, it's cataloged, obviously, in the library, but hasn't been retrieved enough to be discussed. Mm -hmm. So I'm working on a critical anthology of that material. Nice. Yeah, I'm I'm excited about it. That sounds exciting. Um, Well, I guess I want to take this opportunity to thank you very much for uh, sharing some time with us today, Paula. And I want to wish you all the best in all of your future endeavors. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, Sherry. Thank you so much. You're listening to the interview series, New Books in African American Studies. Today, I've been talking with Professor Paula T. Conley as she discusses her new book, Slavery in American Children's Literature, 1790-2010. to I'm your host, Sherry Johnson. Please join me next time. <laughs>